thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, this morning, as you probably well thought, we're going to take some time to reflect upon the Christmas story, but uh, we're not going to look at the full entire story that uh, Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel both deal with. But I I do encourage you, uh, as you take some time just to reflect upon the Christmas season, just to to read that. I think it's a great thing to read as a family and just to remind yourself of all that took place. But this morning, we're just going to look at a portion of what we see uh, in Matthew's gospel in in chapter 2. And actually, what we're going to be looking that takes place after Jesus's birth. We're going to be seeing three groups of people that Matthew shares with us, the wise men, uh, King Herod, and the religious leaders. And all three of these groups are going to have three different responses to King Jesus. And I want you to recognize that because that's the heart of what Matthew chapter 2 is revealing. Is it speaking of Jesus as a king? So it's not just a response to Jesus the baby, but more significantly, Jesus, the King of the Jews, Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so as we look at the three responses of uh, these groups, I want us to ask ourselves the question, how do we respond to Jesus, the King? You know, when it comes to, you know, this culture and people's response to Jesus the King, you know, we see, you know, what we're going to see here with these three groups is very similar, uh, to what we see today. And so, uh, as we examine the wise men's response and Herod's response and the religious leader's response, we're going to see how we should respond to Jesus the King, but also how we shouldn't respond. And, and as we look at that, I want to challenge you to think about your own response to Jesus the King. And so starting in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, let's look at that. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So chapter 2 starts by revealing this group of people uh, referred to as wise men. We know that they come from the east. Their goal is to worship this baby that's been born king of the Jews. Now, we're not told very much about these wise men here in Scripture. And because of that, there's been a lot of speculations uh, and a lot of uh, misconceptions concerning them. And over time, these speculations and these misconceptions have been taken as fact. They've been believed as truth when actually there's not much to back up many of the things that are said. But now tradition and, and we kind of hold to things that really aren't biblical, that we don't really have a lot of uh, basis for doing so. We even sing some Christmas carols as facts based on these uh, speculations uh, when really there's not much to uh, back them up. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, One of the commonly held speculations is that there were three wise men. If you were asked anybody at Christmas, how many wise men are there? Most everybody would say three. But actually, as we look through this passage, we're going to see we're not told how many wise men there are at all. The only reason that people concluded that there was three is because there's three gifts. 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't actually even know how much of that. It could have been piles of gold. It can, you know, we kind of think of this one little thing of gold, one little thing of frankincense, one little thing of myrrh, and you know, three wise men carried it. But you know, we don't have anything to really base that off of, and so it's just a speculation. It's actually more likely that because they traveled so far that their entourage would have been much larger than three people. Uh, but you know, that's just one speculation that we don't have biblical backing for. Another commonly held speculation speculation is these wise men are actually three, once again, but kings. Uh, it's where we get our song, we three kings of Orion are. Uh, it bases this on this concept that these were actually kings. Um, and now that's really unlikely as well, because this word translated wise men uh, is the word magi. Uh, it's actually where we get our English word magician. Uh, in the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Medan Empire, you know, they gave their uh, magician, sorcerer, astronomer, wise men uh, this title of magi. If you remember from the book of Daniel, if you've ever studied through that, Daniel is taken captive uh, by the Babylonians and he's placed in this position of a wise man. He's in that role that the Magi had. And so it's very unlikely the Magi were kings. Instead, they most likely served a king like Mag- uh, like Daniel served King Nebuchadnezzar as one of his wise men. You know, people also speculate what the names of these wise men are. There's names out there that they claim that they are the country that they're from. But once again, the scriptures don't give us any name and they don't give us any specific country. They just say that they're from the east. And so we know that much about them, but we don't know the specific country they're from. So those are some of the speculations concerning the wise men that we've kind of adopted as tradition. But you know what? There's also a commonly held misconception, one of the most... uh Commonly held things that just goes completely against what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 2. And that is that the wise men were actually at the birth of Jesus with the shepherds there in the stable. Now, most nativity sets that you buy today and you put in your house, I have one at my house, you'll notice that the wise men are there. There's three of them. They're usually on their camels with their gifts, but they're there at the birth of Jesus. They're there at the stable. They're standing next to the manger. You know, growing up in the church, I was a part of many Christmas pageants and played a lot of different parts, but a couple times I was a wise man. And as a wise man, I came to the baby who was in the manger and presented my gift to him. And I always thought that the wise men came when Jesus was born that night and presented their gifts in the stable. But is that biblically accurate. Did the wise men present gifts to Jesus while he was there in the stable the night of his birth? Well, notice that Matthew chapter 2 starts by saying, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the wise men didn't get to Jerusalem till when? After Jesus was born. Now, this brings up the question, well, how much longer after Jesus? Was it the next day or a week or a month? Well, I can say one thing. I'm confident that Mary and Joseph weren't spending any more time in that stable than they had to. It wasn't like, you know, they they made it home there and, you know, were there for months or weeks on end. They would have got out of there as quick as possible. But how long did the wise men wait before they were able to get to Jesus? Well, uh, verse 11 tells us this. And when they had come... Into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. 
So notice that they come into a house, not a stable, and notice who they see, the young child, not the baby. This kind of will start to change your perspective here of the nativity scene that you have. So the wise men, you know, they're, they're not there at Jesus's birth. They're not there at the stable. They come later when Mary and Joseph now have a home and they come to this home and they see not baby Jesus, but more likely toddler Jesus. Uh, and actually he could have been up to two years old and, and I'll note why as we continue through this story. So this would be a more biblically accurate picture. We're having some technical problems, but uh, it looks like nothing's being projected up as we want. But a more biblically accurate picture would be the wise men there in a home with Jesus and a toddler baby Jesus. And, you know, I bring this up because I'm sure some of you realize, well, I believe some things about the wise men that are just speculative or actually totally wrong uh, according to what the Bible says. Hey, I was one of them as well growing up. And I bring this up really just to bring the challenge to us of to know our Bibles. Because so it's so easy to kind of buy into tradition and speculation and all sorts of things when the reality is if you just knew what Matthew chapter 2 said, you would recognize right away there's no way the wise men were there at Jesus' birth. It makes it clear. Uh, and so the fact that we kind of buy into this just shows, you know what, we're not studying our Bibles the way that we should or we're taking tradition and speculation over what the Word of God says, which is just as problematic. And so just kind of a challenge as we look at things to recognize we need to know what God's word says. So the wise men, they, they, they come from the east and they get to Jerusalem and notice in verse two what they start saying to people. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The wise men understood something very important. A king has been born. The king of the Jews has been born. And we are here for the purpose of worshiping him. Now, when they got to, um, well, we're we're really not told how they gained this knowledge. How did they know the king of the Jews is going to be born? We are told how they got to Israel. They were guided by a star, but a star obviously isn't telling them, you know, hey, a king's being born. So, So how did they know the king of the Jews is going to be born. Now, the text doesn't give us the answer to that question. Uh, and so if you're going to think about, hey, what's the possible answer? You want to have a biblical basis for any type of reason you give. And most scholars, they bring us to the book of Daniel. Because this is the most likely scenario that we have biblically of how these wise men would have any concept of a Jewish king being born in Israel. If you remember back in the book of Daniel, as I already mentioned before, Daniel is taken into captivity uh, among the Babylonians. He's placed in this role as a wise man, but then he rises in prominence. And the reason he rises in prominence is because King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he wants his wise men to give the interpretation for. And they say, Tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, I don't trust you guys. You tell me what I dreamed and then I'll know that you have the interpretation. They say, well, we can't do that, king. He says, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill all of you. So they start freaking out and, and, and Daniel comes before them and says, you know what, king? I don't have the power to interpret your dream, but the God that I serve does. 
And God gives uh, Daniel the interpretation and what the dream was. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed by that that he puts Daniel at the head, the lead of the Magi, the wise men. And he stays in that role, not only with King Herod, but the king that takes over after King Herod. And so Daniel's in this role as the head of the wise men. And if you read through the book of Daniel, God gives Daniel some amazing prophecies about the coming of Jesus. Uh, They're very significant. They're wonderful. And so Daniel has all this information about the coming Christ. He has the Old Testament scriptures. And I'm confident as the lead of the wise men, it's not hard to say that he would have passed that information on to those that he was teaching and training and over. And most likely, even when he died, that information would have been available to any wise men that came after him if they wanted to study that, if they wanted to learn of that. And so it's likely that that is how they gain their information from Daniel's presence in Babylon and sharing these prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures that they were to come to know uh, of the birth of Jesus. So now we come back to this wise men, but I want us to kind of take a break from a moment. We're going to look at the wise men in detail and, and how they respond to Jesus. But before we do that, we're going to look at the response of Herod and the religious leaders, uh, as we see here in verses 3 through 6. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So the wise men, they've gone through Jerusalem and they're saying, hey, where's the king who's going to be born king of the Jews? Hey, we've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. Now, I'm sure that the wise men, as they get to Jerusalem full of Jewish people, it's the Jewish king, they would have assumed, you guys are going to know where this king is. Surely if we can find the star in the east and get here, you guys already know where the king is. So they're just basically asking for directions. Where's your king, guys? I know you're excited like we are. Direct us to him. We've come to worship him. And I'm sure they're quite surprised as they come and people are like, what are you talking about? What king? Who? And so, you know, all of a sudden this news of these prominent men there in Jerusalem asking where the new king is because they want to worship him. It comes to the actual king at that time, King Herod. And King Herod, we're told, was troubled about this news and all of Jerusalem with him. The news that a new king was born. Now, before we look at Herod's response to Jesus the king, I think it's important to to note a little background information about Herod that helps us understand his response here to Jesus. First of all, Herod was not Jewish. Uh, he was an Edomite. Uh, you have Abraham who has Isaac, Isaac who has Jacob and Esau. Esau's descendants are Edomites. Jacob's descendants are Jews. He becomes Israel, has the 12 tribes of Israel. So, um, Herod is an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. He's not a descendant of Jacob, so he's not Jewish at all. So how is it that a non-Jew takes the Jewish throne? How does he become the Jewish king? 
Well, not because the Jews wanted him to be in that role. Rome, who had conquered Israel, conquered the Jews, they placed uh, Herod as king, even though the Jews did not want him as king. And so it wasn't just because he wasn't Jewish and the Romans forced it. They also didn't like Herod because of the fact that Herod was an extremely violent man. William Barclay, a great commentator and scholar, he says this about uh, a vi- the violent ruler that Herod was. He said, Herod had no sooner come to the throne than he began by annihilating the Sanhedrin. He slaughtered 300 court officers. He married, uh, murdered his wife and her mother, his eldest son, Antipater, two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. And then Augustus, the Roman emperor, said this, that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod was a man who was desperate to keep control over his kingdom, to keep control over his rule, and so he kills his wife, he kills three of his sons, he kills 300 Sanhedrin, he kills anyone he thinks is a threat to his rule, someone who's going to take his crown, his throne from him. Now this is important to understand because he's sitting here and all of a sudden these wise men come into Jerusalem and he hears about a new king. What are you talking about, new king? You mean a king that will take my throne? A king that will take my rule? Here's a man who's already killed anybody who would dare try. And so with that background information, it gives us some insight as to what he does and why he does it. He's paranoid. He does not want his rule to be taken. And that's why we're told he's troubled. Troubled at the thought of a new king coming on the throne. Well, Herod wants to know, where is this king of the Jews going to be born? And he goes to the right group of people, the religious leaders. They should know where the new king will be born. They should know where the Messiah is going to be born. And so he comes to the religious leaders and he asks them where the Messiah, the king of the Jews, would be born. And you know what? They actually have the right answer. Verses 5 and 6 say, So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The religious leaders were very familiar with the Old Testament. This is a quote from Micah, the minor prophet, chapter 5, verse 2. And right when they're asked, they know right away, oh, we know where he's going to be born. Micah 5, 2 says he'll be born in Bethlehem. But notice they know more than just his birthplace. They also recognize he's going to be the ruler and shepherd of the people of Israel. They recognize this is also going to be the king. So now think about this. The wise men, they come, they're sharing this news of a new king being born, that they're there to worship. And Herod, he comes to the religious leaders and says, well, where is this king going to be born? And these guys say, well, probably, well, why are you asking? Well, the wise men are here and they're wondering and and I'm hearing all this chatter about a a king being born. Where is it going to happen? Well, the Bible tells us it's going to happen in Bethlehem. And this is all great. Now imagine you're one of these religious leaders and we're told that at this time they were waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the coming of the King of the Kings and and the King of the Jews. And so they should have been anticipating this. And now all of a sudden they see these people, these dignitaries, these wise men coming from the East claiming a star has led us here. Your King has been born. They recognize the word of God says in Bethlehem. 
Now keep all that in mind, and I want you to note something practical that's important. It's only five miles from the outskirts of Jerusalem to Bethlehem. That's only a few hour walk. So you have these religious leaders, they're there in Jerusalem, they have this information, and even if they're not sure if they can believe what the wise men say, and the fact that they traveled all this way, I mean, it's five miles away, and we don't see one of them get up and say, let's go check it out. Let's go see if the king has actually been born. Let's go look in Bethlehem and see if our king is really here. The religious leaders, they have the information of scripture, but yet they don't really get moved by it at all. That that doesn't personally interest them. And this brings us to the first response that I want us to note, the response here of the religious leaders. The religious leaders are not willing to act upon their knowledge of Jesus the king. You know, many people today are like these religious leaders. There's a lot of people with knowledge about Jesus. And a lot of that knowledge comes on a day like today. The most common times that people will come to a church is Christmas and Easter. And Christmas and Easter messages usually are Jesus-centered because that's the time that we celebrate those things about Jesus' birth, about Jesus' death and resurrection. And so many people are familiar with the fact that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, that he wants to be king of our life. That information is something that is available to them, but like the religious leaders, many are not willing to act on that knowledge. They're not willing to place their trust in Jesus. They're not willing to ask Jesus to forgive them of their sin and and become king of their life. So the knowledge that they have of Jesus really does nothing for them. You know, it's not just knowing about Jesus. Knowing about Jesus isn't good enough. James tells us the demons believe and know about Jesus and shudder. It's more than a knowledge. It's a relationship. If our knowledge doesn't bring us to a place of a relationship, doesn't bring us to a place of trusting in Jesus personally and gaining that relationship, then it's really done nothing for us. So the religious leaders, they tell Herod where the king of the Jews will be born. And notice now what Herod does in verses 7 and 8. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, here's something that I want you to note. Herod has a secret meeting with the wise men. He brings them in secretly. You see, Herod has his own little plan that he's crafting right now. And he just wants him and the wise men there. And he poses a question to them. He wants to know something from the wise men who said, we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so the question is, when did you first see this star? Now that question is leading Herod to try to find the answer to something important. He wants to know how old is this king? Because he's basing the first time you see that star might have been when the king was born. And so how long ago did you see the star so I can kind of gauge how old this king will be? And then he tries to convince these wise men, oh, I just want this information because I want to worship him. Hey, you guys go to Bethlehem and if you find this king of the Jews, come and tell me because I want to go worship him as well. 
Well, we know that that is a complete lie. That is not what Herod's desire is. He doesn't want to worship the king. He wants to kill the king. He wants to annihilate any possible threat to his rule. Well, how do we know this? Well, verse 16 makes very clear his intentions. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Now, Herod says, hey, guys, go find the king and come back and tell me. And they leave saying, sure, we'd love to, because they're convinced he just wants to worship this king like them. Well, they go and they do find King Jesus, which we'll see in a moment. And after that, God warns them, do not go back to Herod. Do not go and tell them. So they don't. So Herod's waiting. One of these guys is going to come back. It's been a week. It's been a month. However long, he realizes they're gone and they're not coming back. And we're told that he gets exceedingly angry. Why? Because they spoiled his plan. His plan was, show me where that king is so I can go kill him. Now I don't know which child in Bethlehem's the king. Well, that's not going to stop me. I got a new plan. I'm going to kill every single baby boy in Bethlehem two years old and under so that I can wipe out any possible threat to my rule. But notice he chose chose two years and under. Well, why did he choose that number? Well, we're told according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Remember he asked, when did the star appear? With that, he gauged the age of the possible child. So that's why I said before, Jesus could have been up to two years old. That's why he kills everyone two years old and younger, because he thought it's very possible that the child is at least two years old at this point in time. And so Herod kills baby Jesus, ultimately because he doesn't want Jesus to rule over him. He wants to rule himself. Well, this brings us to the second response to Jesus, the king, that I want us to take note of. Herod wanted to rule himself and not have Jesus rule over him. You know, when you talk with people and their reasoning for rejecting Jesus as king, this is one of the most common reasons. You kind of can boil it down to this. I don't want Jesus to be king over my life because I want to be king over my life. I don't want to give Jesus rule and reign because I want to rule and reign over myself. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I want to tell me what to do. I don't want to be accountable to anyone. I want to be accountable to myself. And we see that more and more in our culture today. We don't want someone who determines what is right and wrong. We want to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. We don't want to be accountable except to me and what I determine to be right or wrong. And so, you know, ultimately it comes back to, I don't want Jesus as king of my life. I want to be king of my life, which is exactly what we see here with Herod. But we're told Herod was fearful. Why? He's fearful because he has to relinquish this control, relinquish this rule to Jesus the King. But you know what? A lot of people have that same fear. Oh man, if I give my life to Jesus, it's going to be horrible. If I give my life to Jesus and give him control and make him king, I'm going to be miserable. But you know what? It's an unfounded fear. That is not at all what transpires. When you give your life to Jesus, when you make him king of your life, you do not become miserable. Your life doesn't become horrible. It is something that becomes a wonderful blessing and you have joy and you have happiness. 
In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says something very important. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He didn't say, oh, I've come that they might have sadness. I've come that I might make them miserable. I've come, you know, to, to ruin their fun. No, I came to give them abundant life. The greatest life there is, is a life that is ruled by Jesus the King. A life that allows Jesus to rule as opposed to us ruling. And I want you to look at Herod's life. I think it's an extreme example of what transpires when we seek to take the rule of our own life, when we try to hold on to our own kingship. Here's a man who murders his family to try to hold on to that. He is someone who is lonely. He's someone who is miserable. He's someone who knows everyone hates him. Actually, at the end of his life, he knew that no one would mourn his death. And so you know what he did? He said, the day that I die, I want you to round up a hundred prominent people in Jerusalem and kill them so that there will be mourning on the day of my death. He realized, no one likes me. I'm miserable and lone. Why? Because all of the choices that he made to rule himself, think of the difference that would have made in Herod's life if he truly would have come and worshiped the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if he would have relinquished the rule of his life to Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26 says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know, what good is it if in our own rule of ourselves, we gain everything this life has to offer, oh, I'm just going to indulge in it all and reject the kingship of Jesus, reject Jesus as my savior. What Jesus is saying, what good is it is you gain it all, but in the process, lose your soul. You gain all this life has to offer, but in the process, your eternity is now in hell. Is that a good exchange, Jesus is saying? Why would you want to take what this life has to offer in exchange for eternity? So much better to accept Christ now so that you can have eternity in heaven than to reject him now and have an eternity in hell. So far in this chapter, we've seen two ungodly responses to King Jesus. Two responses that I encourage you not to follow. This is not what God would want from us. The religious leaders, they're not willing to act upon their knowledge of the king of the Jews. And Herod wanted to rule himself and not have Jesus rule over him. Well, now we're going to come to the one positive response, the one response that we should actually uh, seek to do and follow the example of, and that's going to be the godly way that the wise men respond. Notice what we're told here in verses 9 through 11. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the wise men, they, they depart from the secret meeting that Herod has from him. And Herod says, oh, go to Bethlehem and you know tell me if you find the king of the Jews. And now we're told that the star goes before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. 
Now, what we see here in chapter 2 seems to imply that this star wasn't always visible for the wise men to see. This would explain why they came into Jerusalem instead of going straight to Bethlehem, why they would basically ask for directions. Hey, where is he who's king of the Jews, guys? Hey, Jerusalem, point us to where we should go. If the star was always available, they would have just gone straight to Bethlehem, straight to where they needed to be. So it seems that it wasn't always uh, available. But now all of a sudden they come out of this meeting. There it is, shining bright again. And it doesn't just lead them to Bethlehem. We're told it's shining right over the home home where Jesus is at. And something I think is important to note here, and I love this about God. God leads these wise men, these men who are searching for Jesus, searching for the king, those who have a desire for him. He leads them right to the place where Jesus is at. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. I love that God always reveals himself to those who truly are seeking or desiring or are wanting that. Now we need to recognize it is God who first ultimately initiates uh, with us. But there's so often where God initiates with people and, and wants to reveal himself to people. And we still just push them away. We still reject. We don't want to search out. We don't want to find. But yet Jesus brings out this reality. If you truly desire him, truly seek him, truly want him, he will reveal himself to you. And he does this with these Gentile wise men. It's kind of an interesting part of the story. You've got these religious Jews who should know and should be seeking Bethlehem and finding their king. They don't have any desire. But yet these Gentiles from another land, they come seeking the king of the Jews. And God reveals specifically where Jesus is. And they come to his house. And I want you to note the two things that we're told that they do in verse 11. First, they fall down and worship Jesus. You know, these wise men recognize something that Jesus is not just king of the Jews, but he is their king, the one who is deserving of their worship. In response to that truth, they fell down and worshiped him. And this must have been quite a sight, especially for Mary. I mean, here are these dignitaries coming and bowing down to a young toddler and worshiping him because they recognize who he is. The second thing the wise men do is they see Jesus and give him <clears throat> gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They recognize Jesus not just uh, worthy of worship, he's worthy of our offering. He's worthy of us giving gifts to him. And, and these are gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this brings us to the third response to Jesus, the king that I want us to take note of. The wise men accepted Jesus as their king and offered him their worship and their gifts. You know, this is the kind of response that God wants us to have to Jesus the King. That we would accept Jesus not only as our King, but also as our Savior. That we would accept that Jesus is God, that he is the ruler of all, and that he made a choice to save us from our sins by going from the throne of heaven to the stable of earth, by being born as a baby to then grow up and live a sinless life 
and then pay the price for our sin on the cross to live a way that none of us did, perfection in the eyes of God, never sinning so that he could sacrifice himself for your sin and for my sin is exactly what he did on the cross. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And that because of that, we would respond with worship. We would respond with making Jesus our king, putting our trust in him to be the one who truly saves us. Charles Spurgeon said this about the example the wise men set for us. Those who look for Jesus will see him. Those who truly see him will worship him. And those who worship him will consecrate their substance to him. For those of you here this morning who have already placed your faith in Jesus, you've already accepted him as your savior, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you living like Jesus is your king? Yeah, I think oftentimes we live like Jesus is our savior. We're grateful for his sacrifice on the cross. You know, we we remember it in communion. You know, oh, thank you for saving me. But do we live our life like he's our king, our master? the one in control, the one that we obey, the one that we allow to rule our lives. If I were to look at your life or others were to look at your life, would they say, oh, definitely Jesus is your king or you are your king? And I want us to think about that as we think of the the ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Is he truly that in every area of our life? Is he really the king Not just the Savior. Is he the one that we've given rule over our life to say, you know what? I will obey you. I will follow you. I'm not going to do my own will, but yours. Do our actions demonstrate that Jesus is our King? You know, as you take time to remember Jesus' birth this Christmas, I want to encourage you that he wants to be more than just the baby, more than just the Savior. He wants to be your King And he wants to rule over every area of your life. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you never made him Lord and King, there's something important for you to understand. Because a lot of people think, well, you know what? I don't care if you think he's King. He's not my King. I'm never going to worship him as King. Well, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 reveals something very important to us. It says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Something that we need to understand is when we die, every one of us is going to, and we're going to stand before Jesus. And you know what? At that point in time, whether you believed he was king in this life, you're going to believe it then. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But but here's the thing I want you to understand is in this life, if we accept Jesus as king, accept him as savior now, when we meet him and stand before him in the next life, he's not just going to be our king. He's going to be our king that saves us from our sin and enables us to spend eternity with him in heaven. But if in this life you reject Jesus as king, reject him as your savior, say, you know what, I'm going to be king over my life, rule over my life, I don't need a savior. When you die, you will also stand before Jesus. He will be your king. You will bow before him. You will recognize who he is, but he will not be the king that saves you from your sin. He will be the king that judges you for your sin. And you will not spend eternity with him in heaven. He will judge you for your sin and you will be separated from him in an eternity in hell. 
And so what we do with Jesus in this life, the choice that we make concerning him, whether we make him king, whether we make him savior now, will determine how we face him when we die. Will determine our eternity when we die. I want to close reading the words of a wonderful hymn titled, Who is he in yonder stall? Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? Who is he on yonder tree, dies in grief and agony? Who is he from the grave, comes to succor, help, and save? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Are you willing to crown Jesus as your king? Let's pray.